From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Emily Ernson. This is your news for Tuesday, April 4th. Two of Utah's coal-fired power plants will close by 2032. Now, people who have relied on those facilities for jobs are wondering what will happen to their communities. Sean Higgins, with our partners at KUER, has more. The Huntington and Hunter coal plants in Emory County have been identified by Rocky Mountain Power as possible locations for future nuclear power stations. The plants account for more than 300 jobs. And spokesperson David Eskelson says they don't plan on leaving those employees out in the cold. When we've had retirements of existing plants, we do our best to make arrangements for our employees to, uh, if they want to stay with the company, to, to retrain and, and redeploy at other facilities in our service area. But local leaders are cautiously optimistic. Farron City Mayor Adele Justice says the majority of residents are employed by nearby power plants. We've had a long relationship with coal mines and power plants, and so the change is obviously something scary and um, maybe a little bit intimidating to us, but I think we're ready to see what the future holds. Eskelson says the company will release a community action plan next year and expects to be training employees on new technologies by 2027. Sean Higgins, KUER News. Every five years, Congress updates something called the Farm Bill. This piece of legislation is supposed to do things like keep food prices fair and ensure national food supplies. The bill expires this year, and tribal agricultural leaders met with U.S. senators recently to discuss indigenous priorities for the upcoming changes. Emma Gibson of the Mountain West News Bureau reports. Whether it's nutrition, production, or education, the tribal agricultural experts advocated for more sovereignty at the hearing. One expert was Vincent Cowboy with the Navajo Agricultural Products Industry. He supported a recommendation to have the Department of Agriculture train tribal members to become crop or livestock inspectors. For the past six years, we did have a USD inspector from New Mexico for us to inspect our products to go export or even domestically. That was one of the biggest challenges for export for us for NAPI. If the tribes grow their own, he says, these inspectors can also be more familiar with traditional native crops, like blue cornmeal. One senator said that the last farm bill brought tribes to the table, quote, in a meaningful way. But from the discussion, it's obvious there are still opportunities to cut out the federal middleman from tribal agriculture. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Emma Gibson. The Federal Bureau of Investigation was keeping a close eye on racial justice protests in Denver during the summer of 2020. So much so, it was paying informants that had infiltrated the movement. That's according to an investigative podcast series called The Alphabet Boys. The series draws heavily on undercover recordings made by one informant in particular who became highly visible in those protests. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KGNU's Shannon Young spoke with Trevor Aronson, the host and producer of the podcast series. So the title of your investigative series, The Alphabet Boys, refers to people who work with alphabet agencies like the FBI. Why did you kick off your series with a Denver case? 
Well, really, this we we felt this was one of the most important stories to tell, which was, you know, during the summer of 2020, there were a lot of questions I think demonstrators and activists had, which was, you know, were these people that they viewed as suspicious in their protest movement perhaps working for the for the government in some ways? And those were at the times things that seemed like conspiracy theories. Uh, but what this case shows is that we were able to get um, hundreds of pages of internal FBI reports and uh, and over a dozen hours of undercover recordings that showed exactly that, that in Denver, the FBI hired a violent felon as an informant, inserted him into the racial justice movement, and tasked him not only with encouraging protesters to become violent, but then trying to entice individual Black activists in crimes, and specifically trying to engineer a plot to assassinate the state's attorney general, which ultimately went nowhere. And this violent felon that you referred to, uh, the series focuses on Mickey Windecker, the FBI informant who drives a silver hearse, who infiltrated the racial justice protests in Denver in the summer of 2020. But the most recent episode takes us to Colorado Springs. Tell us about that. Sure. So what we found in the reports was that Mickey Windecker, the FBI's informant, had provided information to the FBI about an activist who was active in demonstrations in both Denver and Colorado Springs. That prompted a second investigation that the FBI opened but instead of, of hiring an informant, as they did in Denver, they worked with the local police department, the Colorado Springs Police Department, and recruited a young female detective to uh, become the undercover. And so what she did was she wore a pink wig and she dressed in a way that was somewhat provocative and suggested that she was a sex worker and volunteered at the Chinook Center, which is an umbrella organization for a number of um, left-wing activist groups in, in Colorado Springs. And what she did that was slightly different than the, the Denver informant, Mickey Windecker, is that by volunteering at this activist center, she was able to collect information over nearly a year on activists who were, um, you know, going to the center, providing that to the FBI. And in two instances, she had invited male activists over to her apartment. Um, and, and once they got there, she then introduced them to two men that they weren't expecting to be there. And those men tried to entice them into getting into an illegal weapons transaction. In both of those cases, the, the activists who were targeted, who were invited to her apartment, did not move forward in the crime. There, were, there was no crime that actually took place. But again, what this showed was that there was a pattern, that the FBI's behavior in Colorado Springs was very similar to the behavior in Denver, in that they were trying to create the situation where an activist could be charged with a crime that would be seen as potentially violent. And I think what's important is that, you know, this shows that the Colorado Springs case shows that the the Denver investigation wasn't anomalous, that it happened elsewhere, as in Colorado Springs. And I think that raises questions about where else nationally these tactics may have been used by the FBI in the summer of 2020. And in the case of Colorado Springs, there was an agreement between the Colorado Springs Police Department and the FBI through the Joint Terrorism Task Force. What other cities in Colorado or in this area also have those kinds of agreements? And have you found evidence that local police will work with the FBI in order to infiltrate movements that aren't necessarily violent in nature, that are more political? <laughs> So most, most cities in the United States, unless they've opted out, Portland, Oregon is one that has opted out, but most cities, including Denver, have, a, have, an, have an agreement with the FBI through the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which basically creates a partnership for local police and the FBI, ostensibly to help them ferret out would-be terrorists or security threats to particular cities. Um, and there have always been concerns since these Joint Terrorism Task Forces started, whether the FBI with local partners may abuse their authority in some way, such as investigating 
First Amendment First Amendment protected activity. And and what we see in Colorado Springs is that exactly that happens that the the FBI basically deputizes local police officers. In this case, a detective who goes undercover, and as well as another detective who worked on the investigation, to basically carry out the role of a federal agent in investigating these movements. Um, this is the first. The, the Denver case and the Colorado Springs case are the first examples that we know of uh, where the 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 JTTF was involved in investigating First Amendment protected activities. And I think it's it's clear. It should be should be clear to point out, and and this is an important part of the story, is that both the Colorado Springs investigation and the Denver investigation were started based on nothing more than First Amendment protected activity, based on things that activists said, which is against what the FBI director has stated to Congress as the FBI's policy, which Christopher Reyes consistently said, they do not investigate speech, they do not investigate ideology. But what we saw in, in this case is that the FBI did exactly that. And I think the concerning thing for JTTFs or Joint Terrorism Task Forces is that they essentially then um, enroll the local police department's help in these kinds of very questionable activities. In Denver, the focus were the racial justice protests that were occurring oftentimes outside of the the state capitol. In Colorado Springs, a housing march was targeted. So are housing rights also something that seemed to be a a sore spot or a a reason for surveillance? Yeah, so in Denver, it was strictly um, related to the racial justice protests that summer. In Colorado Springs, the, the FBI and the Colorado Springs Police Department became interested in the Chinook Center and the left-wing activist community there as a result of the racial justice protests in 2020. But the undercover um, the undercover officer, officer working with the FBI, a, a woman named April Rogers, remained there for a year spying on the activists. And so those activists were involved not only in racial justice protests, but also in advocating for housing rights um, and, and, um, and police accountability. And ultimately, one of the um, demonstrations that the undercover cop participates in is a is a demonstration for housing rights in which um, several of the activists were arrested. And what what we gathered from materials from the Colorado Springs case was that it, it's clear that they were investigating the activist community as a whole, not just those related to racial justice movement. That they were they're investigating all of the groups that were related to the Chinook Center, which you know has a, is a broad coalition of organizations advocating for a number of causes. Most of them, most of them considered kind of left wing causes. Let's close with the way that you close each podcast. You end each episode by saying we believe this story is important and could result in changes to FBI oversight and policies. Have you seen any movement on this thus far? We've gotten a lot of attention. Um, Senator Ron Wyden of, of Oregon has commented and, and expressed his concerns about what our investigation has revealed. But but so far, you know, from a policy standpoint, from a congressional oversight standpoint, um, nothing has has happened. But it's still early. You know, we have eight of 10 episodes out. Uh, we have a new episode coming out Tuesday. And so we're hoping that by revealing what happened, we can not only reveal exactly what happened in Colorado, but also potentially um, you know, help unearth other um, other cases elsewhere in the United States, because we do firmly believe that this was not um, strictly related to, to Colorado, that it happened elsewhere as well. Trevor Aronson is reporter, producer and host of the Alphabet Boys series. It's a podcast that you can find wherever you do get your podcasts and you can find his writing online at theintercept.com. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. That story was shared with us via Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public media stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, including KZMU. The Grand County Commission meets today. Maggie McGuire of the Moab Sun News previews the commission's agenda.
On the agenda for this week's Grand County Commission, local elected officials will try to find a new way to fund a Moab Small Business Development Center after state legislators passed a bill restricting how tourism funds are spent. Local housing advocates, realtors, and residents are prompting a discussion of the high-density housing overlay, an ordinance crafted in 2018, saying that it may actually be hindering projects. Commissioners will also talk about infrastructure and other future projects that will seek funding from the Permanent Community Impact Fund, a state board that awards money from mining and extraction industries back to impacted counties. Grand County Commission meetings are held on the first and third Tuesday of every month at 4 p.m. Meetings are streamed online on the Grand County, Utah YouTube page. And that's the KZMU News for Tuesday, April 4th. Get your community-powered journalism weekdays on the airwaves at noon and 6. You can also find KZMU News anytime online at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.